From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, Francisco Cerezo, partner and chair of the firm's U.S. Latin America practice, and Ambassador Michael McKinley discuss current events in Latin America, including the recent election of Javier Malay as Argentina's new president. Good morning, Ambassador. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first of the DLA U.S. Latin America Panorama podcast series. We're very excited to kick off our podcast series, essentially inviting leaders from the Americas to address issues of the day, trends, innovation, and continue conversation in the region and globally. And to that end, we're delighted to have our first Panorama podcast guest, Ambassador Mike McKinley. We've had the pleasure of collaborating with Ambassador McKinley in the past. He's always shown terrific perspective on events of the day, whether in the Americas or globally. So we're very excited to have him. Just by way of a little bit of background, Ambassador McKinley is a senior counselor at the Cohen Group. Cohen Group is a government and strategic affairs and policy firm based in D.C., which has a relationship with DLA Piper for going on two decades, founded by former Secretary of Defense William Cohen. And Ambassador McKinley is a senior member of the Cohen Group and collaborates very closely with us and our clients throughout the world. Prior to being with the Cohen Group, Ambassador McKinley was senior advisor to the Secretary of State. During his 37-year career at the Foreign Service, he was U.S. Ambassador Ambassador to Brazil, U.S. Ambassador to Peru and to Colombia, and interestingly, also U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. So in addition to his ambassadorships, he also held a number of senior positions at the State Department and in different embassies throughout the world throughout his career. We're just thrilled to have him. So, Ambassador, you and I have had the opportunity to have conversations both publicly in client-facing events, but also privately, and we could speak for hours. You write frequently, you're a contributor to the Financial Times, political, foreign affairs, everything from free trade agreements to what's going on now in Ukraine. You're just a wealth of information, so it's always a joy to speak with you. But we're going to try to focus the conversation on the Americas. Having said that, let's start with Argentina. Now, December 10th. President Millet was sworn in as the new president of Argentina. He's a far-right libertarian, quite a controversial figure, but people were thirsting for a change in Argentina. And time will tell if his policies, which some people perceive as being very radical, some are concerned that the entrenched bureaucracy and the way things have been done under Peronismo or Kirchnerismo make it too difficult to affect change in Argentina. The world is watching. Would love your thoughts on the election of Millet just as an open topic, and then we'll get a little bit more granular. Well, Francisco, terrific to be with you today. And we're meeting one day after President Millet's inauguration. And there was striking theater in Buenos Aires. As he was sworn in, he gave his first speech, not to the Congreso or assembly, but to the public, and kept it short, 35-minute speech in which he wasn't specific on what the objectives were, but he made clear there was a major crisis that had to be confronted and made clear that there was no money. And the anticipation now is that he will announce an economic program and we'll be off to the races at that point. What has been interesting since he was elected is he has rolled back a lot of his more controversial rhetoric and proposals. There's no more talk about instantly dollarizing the economy, 
about closing down the central bank and certainly no details on what the cuts to government spending will entail. And instead, he has brought on board a number of more traditional economists, including Luis Caputo, to serve as his finance minister, who previously served under President Macri. In those early years of growth under President Macri as finance minister and then served briefly as central bank governor. The anticipation now is not that Malay will pull back from addressing Argentina's problems, but may take a more considered look at the steps that are necessary to bring down inflation and to restore confidence of investors in the economy. And what we're seeing at the moment is still a deteriorating situation. At the beginning of November, we were talking about 140, 150% inflation rate by the end of the year. We're now speaking about 200%. We're talking about the need to pay back the IMF at the end of January and creditors up to $4 billion. Argentina at this moment is at net negative foreign reserves. And 40% of Argentina's population is living in poverty. So the anticipation is, what kind of measures will he take? Will he look at lifting foreign exchange controls? Will he relax import and export restrictions? There's been talk of a $20 billion cut to public sector expenditure. Government generates about 38% of Argentina's GDP. So under that scenario, $20 billion is a gigantic sum and will have an extraordinary impact on employment inside the country and in terms of government positions and the bureaucracies that are cut. So a giant task ahead of him, but the requirements have been well-defined, and what we're seeing now is the waiting period. Over the next week, two weeks, three weeks, it will be absolutely essential that he lays out a program that people can believe in, because he's going to be asking the Argentine population to assume a great deal of pain. And he's already talking about 18 to 24 months to actually restore the country's trajectory of economic growth and to bring inflation under control. So roll of the dice ahead of us. Should he fail? Should he lose the confidence of those who voted for him? We can imagine there'll be a popular reaction on a scale we saw in Argentina's previous financial crisis in 2002 and in 1989. People are not patient. They come out in the streets and the pressures mount on whatever government's in power. You addressed one of the follow-up questions I had for you. He was essentially elected with a clear mandate over 10% margin of victory. But we know that in Argentina, the honeymoon period can be brief. We've had times where there's been multiple presidents under a couple of years. There's been multiple changes in government. So one of the things that I thought interesting, in his speech yesterday, he was unequivocal about putting out there the difficulty of the road ahead and what he characterized essentially as almost the quilombo, the mess that he inherited, just so that he could set expectations clearly with the electorate. He's clearly going to great pains to make sure that everyone understands that he's going to need time. Now, he's sketched out in a number of interviews, 18 to 24 months. What would be interesting is if indeed 
he will be given the 18 to 24 months. And then obviously how much progress he would be able to make there is the 18 to 24 months so that it's not a throwback to years past where there seems to be a new president every few months. You may recall well over 10 years ago, forget the names of the presidents at the time, but De La Rua and several others, one after the other. So your thoughts on the volatility of the Argentine system, especially when you have perhaps someone like Sergio Massa and others who will probably be waiting in the wings, waiting to see if then they can come back to the ways of old. So that's an excellent point to raise. Argentine politics are not only extremely volatile at this stage, they're highly polarized. And Millet, like other populists in the region, does not have control of Congress. His party has a very small representation in the Senate, minority representation in the House of Representatives equivalent, and the Peronists still dominate in both the lower and upper chambers. Not majorities, but they have the plurality of seats. And the alliance that's anticipated to back him, Juntos por el Cambio, is a mix of parties and political interests, and they're not all going to align with Malay. So as he moves forward, if he's going to get anything done, it's going to be through coalition building. In that context, he does have a window provided he builds a constellation of congressional support. And the reason is that there's an understanding given Argentina's not so distant history in 2002-2003. Populations the younger and older generations of Argentines have lived through that, and they know that draconian measures have to take place to restore confidence in the management of the economy and the protection of their own livelihoods. Going forward, however, there's going to be a huge question mark over whether the government can sustain a social safety net in terms of income, support, in a country that's used to having a very significant safety net in place when it works. A key critical component is how do you cushion the impact on the poorest sectors of Argentina's population, but also the middle class, who are arguably most likely to have high expectations of this government. So, Ambassador, I'm sure you'll be with us again in future podcast series. And I actually think that Argentina is something we should revisit. We could be talking today for hours. And perhaps we could do is in one of our subsequent podcasts later this year, have you again. And we could see where things are perhaps at the six-month mark with Argentina and some of the other countries. But moving on just because lots to cover on today's podcast. So Argentina is just one of 30-plus countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And Concerns about growth in the region more broadly, whether the 2020s will be another lost decade for Latin America. That with the caveat that indeed there are some countries in Latin America that have done well. You could point to perhaps the Dominican Republic that has risk economic activity, while others not so much. And while the GDP forecast for 2023 was recently revised up from 1.4% to 2.3%, according to the IMF, this is still disappointingly slow compared to growth projections in other emerging 
emerging markets, whether it's Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa at 4% or Asia at 4.5%. But in any event, something is happening in the region and FDI flows total $225 billion in 2022, an increase from 2021. And something's going on now that while globally there's a slowdown in FEI, Latin America has seen an increase. So would love your thoughts on that, on these trends. It's right to highlight the contrast between Latin American growth rates and growth rates in other regions of the world. That said, I think it's important to focus on how people were looking at Latin America two years ago, four years ago, speaking of lost decades, particularly in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, and the rapid rebound we've actually seen in most Latin American countries from the impact of the pandemic. More importantly, returning to growth rate levels and GDP levels of 2019 much more quickly than anticipated. And just over the past year, a complete misreading of where Latin America was coming into 2023 by all of the major institutions and financial agencies. In other words, Latin America ended up, it may not sound like a lot, but we're already at almost 1% higher growth rate projection for the entire region. That is a lot in the context of projections for an entire region, and certain countries are doing much better. So as we look at it, perhaps it's the moment to compare Latin America, not to the rest of the world, but to itself and its own history. And are there foundations being set which suggest a stronger growth trajectory for the 20s than we anticipated before? All the indicators are that, yes, you pointed to the foreign direct investment flows, which were unprecedented in 2022 and continue this year at a time when, as you pointed out, FDI flows internationally were falling. Extraordinary figures. This is a reflection of changing geoeconomic realities, geopolitical realities. And as the director of the Inter-American Bank has pointed out, the opportunities are concentrated in energy, food supplies, and climate mitigation investments dealing with the environment more broadly. I would add, as others have, that Latin America is undergoing a digital transformation that's really extraordinary. There is much greater macroeconomic stability than anticipated. In most countries, inflation is being brought under control. Even with left-wing governments, there's not the kind of spending that would have undermined credibility in the management of countries' basic economic policies. And we're seeing, because of the war in Ukraine, because of tensions over China and the United States and global trade, the investments being made in climate mitigation and adaptation, and frankly, the need of the new green economy. So we're looking at Latin America where there's a significant percentage, 50, 60% of the world's lithium reserves, significant copper reserves, smaller amounts of other critical minerals. Latin America also as an energy producer and particularly natural gas, coming back to the fore with expansions in Brazil, with the growth that we're seeing in exports from Guyana. It's really a moment in which there's opportunities developing in Latin America. We can talk about the challenges. They're always the same and the potential for things going astray. But this is a moment where all of a sudden, 
this region looks a lot more interesting than it's looked in over a decade. So, Ambassador, you've just mentioned some of the sectors and industries, and I know that the question of nearshoring or reshoring supply chains is also something that's top of mind, and I'd like to ask you about that. But before we move on to that topic, which I know many people are interested in, when we were preparing for the podcast, a number of folks told me it's important to get his perspective on nearshoring or reshoring of supply chains from Asia. But before that, two things that I've heard you speak about before, which I think are really interesting and germane to this conversation. One is the supposed left wing or this pink wave and how it's impacted. I've heard you share some very thoughtful insight on that and how the institutions have held and how this is just a healthy part of the democratic process. If you could perhaps spend a couple of minutes on that. And also one aspect of Latin America, which I think probably a conversation for another podcast, but I'll plant the seed and maybe you could give me your reaction, even if briefly is as there's these different movements in Latin America and the different countries, you also see that there's significant development of the multilatinas, very meaningful family groups, privately held conglomerates from Latin America, that whether it's fleeing from complicated opportunities or precisely because they're doing very well in that country, and it's for various reasons, you see them investing outside of their national boundaries and they become significant investors, not only in other parts of Latin America, but even even into the Americas generally, into the United States, even Canada and Asia and Europe. So that's also something that I think is part of the story of Latin America, which is the emergence over the years. And you've seen it even very noticeably over the last 24 months emerging out of the pandemic, how these groups from Latin America have become very serious players, along with the traditional global corporates that we all know that invest globally across sectors energy, is the emergence or the more protagonistic role, if you will, of these groups from Latin America that have expanded and gone outside of their national boundaries, sometimes reacting to trying to diversify country risk because it's a complicated situation in their home countries, but other times it's precisely because they're thriving and they want to diversify and they're seeking opportunities to deploy this capital in markets outside of their national boundaries. So I know that's a lot, but would love your thoughts on this pink wave, as you will, and then also on the emergence of these privately held groups, multilatinas, from Latin America as global players. That is a lot. And it is a lot, but as I, you were speaking, it just <laughs> triggered these two things that I've heard you speak on. I would love your thoughts on that. So I'm going to try to be concise on this because I think, again, you're raising absolutely central questions. On the political front, all of two years ago, maximum three years, there was widespread concern about what the election of left-wing governments in Latin America meant, particularly in the context of the COVID pandemic, the vast suffering of populations in that period, tens of millions of Latin Americans who had seen their lives improve only to fall back into relative poverty or absolute poverty as a result of losing jobs and livelihood during the pandemic, the economic impact, and obviously the enormous human cost in terms of lives. And we reached a point where the six largest economies of the region for the first time in history were headed by left of center governments and some of the governments quite left-wing in terms of what they articulated as their policy objectives. Fast forward, and we see a slightly different picture. It's not that 
left-wing parties or leaders have abandoned their objectives, but they've encountered the realities of politics. And they've encountered the realities of politics in countries where, as you rightly point out, the institutions are stronger than people anticipated. Politics in which there are many different points of view and opinions. Politics in which they don't necessarily control the national assemblies or the national courts. So you've seen them moderate their objectives as we see in many other democracies. And some of the more ambitious or radical programs that were being proposed in places like Colombia and Chile being rolled back. The challenges of economic downturns in Argentina all but killing efforts, significant changes of policy in that country. In fact, economic orthodoxy becoming more and more an area of consensus, even between the Peronist and opposition parties, just differences over how to apply certain measures. In Peru, a left-wing president attempting a constitutional coup being ousted by the National Assembly. And in Mexico, a lot of rhetoric, but outside of the energy and electricity generation sectors and some public sector spending, particularly in southern Mexico, not much of a change at all in terms of the overall management of the economy. And finally, Brazil, where it's hard to see a major shift in emphasis in terms of macroeconomic policies, greater focus on protecting the environment, the Amazon, building out new technologies, and reaching out to global markets on a significant scale. But the fact of the matter is we're looking at a much more complex and less alarming picture in terms of what left-wing government elections seem to portend two years ago. Also, pendulum swing. In the past, I've spoken about pendulums swinging left. Well, they're beginning to swing right again, whether it's the election of Malay, whether it's the regional and local elections in Colombia where President Petro's opponents swept the country, in Peru where it's very clear that the leftist parties have lost considerable support, and we could go down the list. We could talk about Central America, where a left-wing government in Honduras is also pursuing much more moderate policies than anticipated, and where considerably right-of-center president there in Salvador is attracting attention for a host of reasons. So as we engage in the region, I think looking at it as a part of the world, it's not that different from other regions of the world that have numerous democracies. Companies need to adapt to the ebbs and flows of the political process. In terms of how companies adapt, and particularly looking at multilatinas and how they're approaching the region, we're seeing a very significant effort, which we've seen in the past. I don't want to oversell it, but it is a pendulum swing also on regional integration and a recognition that there are greater synergies to be gained by working with neighboring countries, taking advantage of changes in global markets that make some of Latin America's commodities particularly of use these days to Europe, to China, to the United States. And the multilatinas for some time now have been positioning themselves with investments across the region 
to act and grow in a more integrated market setup. They're also investing in the United States and further afield. And it's a reflection of their maturity as companies. Some of them are significant world players. And we're seeing also a transformation on the digital front in which homegrown tech companies are not just becoming unicorns, but significant players, period, internationally. So something interesting is underway. As companies look at this market, therefore, I think keeping in mind, particularly if you're an investor from outside the region, that there's strengths to draw on, partners to develop, and systems that largely work, even if they're cumbersome. It is the moment to engage very broadly, both with companies that have been there a long time, foreign investors that have been there, sometimes called legacy investors, the growing multi-Latinas, and the new sectors and promises of growth. And I'm thinking of lithium, I'm thinking of service and digital technologies, the health sector, and so on. So moving on, Ambassador McKinley, especially after the pandemic, a lot has been made of nearshoring, reshoring supply chains from Asia. A lot has been discussed. I know time is going to betray us a little bit, but if you could briefly share your thoughts on if you see it coming with the strength that so many people have mentioned, what are your thoughts on this new phenomenon that everyone's been talking about over the last 24 months? So nearshoring? French shoring, reshoring, take your pick of terms you would want to use to describe what people want to see happen. And then there's the reality of what is happening. If we look at this in global terms, we're seeing an absolute explosion in Southeast Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, as companies, both Asian companies and investors from outside of the region, expanding massively their production capabilities in different countries. And it's not so much a pulling out of China, although some of that is taking place, as diversification of production, developing Plan Bs in case U.S.-China relations take a turn for the worse, and frankly, building flexibility into supply chains. I mentioned Southeast Asia, because it marks a very strong contrast with what we're seeing in Latin America. In Latin America, there's the interest at the 30,000-foot level. In terms of what's happening on the ground, much less in evidence. In Mexico, really no firm commitment by the government to supporting nearshoring, reshoring. But because, as I mentioned earlier, Mexico is a case of a country where the macroeconomic fundamentals are holding. Companies are making their own decisions about what makes sense in terms of diversifying their supply chains. And we're seeing tens of billions of dollars coming into Mexico, some from U.S. companies, but also from Chinese firms, wary of growing restrictions on direct exports from China and from companies from other parts of the world but certainly not the flood of investment that was once anticipated. Countries in Central America and the Caribbean, and I'm thinking specifically of Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, and Panama, have launched 
what I consider a visionary effort to present themselves as stable, small environments with an educated workforce, with good macroeconomic policies and proximity to the United States, who could serve as a base for production and exports to the American market. There's some discussion with the United States and the relevant departments, but nowhere near the focus there should be on what could be a very significant opportunity. And the last country I would mention in this regard is Colombia, but with, frankly, the mixed signals in terms of the political direction of the country, I think investors are holding off before they make big decisions on relocating production lines or diversifying their production lines and using Colombia as a base. So something interesting is developing, but perhaps at a much slower pace than people would have hoped. And if I can add a point about the Southern Cone, all year there's been anticipation that Mercosur, the grouping of countries in South America in a trade bloc, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, and Paraguay, was prepared to finally close a trade agreement that's been 20 years in the making with the European Union. It looks like it collapsed in the last few days. And that's disappointing because I think it reflected a sense among European Union economies that there was real potential and synergies in terms of Southern South America and Europe and across a variety of sectors. Assembling blocks appear to have been an outgoing Argentine government that threw out the opportunity that was sitting on its desk simply to, if not make life more difficult for incoming President Millet, certainly not taking the responsibility of a decision on closing an agreement. And because the Europeans, particularly the French, continue to raise questions about environmental enforcement, and that's reopened a box of thorny issues which will have to be discussed. Chile is too small an economy. Frankly, its geographic location doesn't lend itself to the nearshoring, reshoring debate of the way, say, Mexico's proximity to the American market does. That said, Chile, and I think we're going to start seeing this over the next year or two, is revamping for a significant engagement based, obviously, on lithium and copper exports, but also attempting to grow and diversify trade and investment between Chile and the East Asian region. Well, complex questions require complex and nuanced answers. So that's why we have you here. Thank you for that. I know we have a lot of things we want to discuss. And you mentioned Central America in your response just now. So that just gets me to thinking about some of the countries in Central America, specifically El Salvador. While El Salvador is clearly not a major economy in Latin America, it's received a lot of attention because of Nayib Bukele's presidency. The measures he's taken, he's obviously very popular in his country, over 90% approval. A lot of criticism, obviously, crime has been reduced dramatically, and El Salvador is thriving by many measures, but it's not without a fair amount of criticism with respect to human rights and civil rights. And then there's also the issue of whether he's constitutionally barred from getting reelected. So given that the elections are in February, would love and that we are airing this podcast prior to, I'm not asking 
for predictions, but just your general thoughts on what's happened in El Salvador. It's a fascinating topic for people who are well beyond Central America observers. And even there's a lot of talk in Latin America generally as to whether countries should follow the Bukele model, whether it's in neighboring countries like Guatemala or Honduras or well beyond Central America. So I would love your thoughts on what's been happening in El Salvador in these past years in the Bukele presidency. Well, Bukele came to power in 2019, as you know. Crime rates were already beginning to dip before he came into office, but it's fair to say they remained among the highest in the world, and particularly homicide rates inside the country. And it was, frankly, a phenomenon that affected a number of Central American countries, Guatemala and Honduras in particular. But we can range more broadly throughout Latin America, a surge in violence associated with drug trafficking, not just drug trafficking, everywhere from Mexico to Venezuela to Colombia, down to Argentina. And Bukele's response coming in was a promise to deal with gang violence and to address citizen security. That seems like an awfully academic term, but if you put it in the context of a country where corner stores were being extorted from the little money they made to pay for protection or the freedom to even sell their goods in a neighborhood, where kidnappings were a common occurrence, where young women were the victims of kidnapping, rape, and worse, where human trafficking because of the significant flow of Salvadoran migrants to the United States was a lucrative business for criminal organizations. The issue of security goes far beyond drug trafficking. So over the last three plus years, with a draconian policy aimed at reducing the impact of the gangs on Salvadoran society, Bukele essentially declared war on the gangs and rounded up, at latest count, over 70,000 people who are sitting in jail awaiting sentencing and there are legitimate concerns about human rights violations, whether many of those who are arrested were actually members of gangs or guilty of any crimes, concerns about due process, the speed of trials, conditions under which people are being held. But the net effect in terms of citizen security has been a 180-degree transformation of how Salvadorans feel about safety in their own country. And unless you've lived in countries where there's high crime, it's hard to fully grasp just how significant an achievement that represents. Whether it's long-term or short-term, we will find out. So we have a president who has anywhere between 80 and 90% approval ratings as we speak. It's an extraordinary political phenomenon. We've seen what's happened in Ecuador over the last two years, where there seems to be a complete breakdown in the country's second largest city, Guayaquil, in terms of control of violent crime. We've seen the surge in violence in Argentina, in Chile, in Colombia, in Mexico. It's certainly not surprising that some other governments, including left-of-center governments, are looking at the success Bukele has had in reducing crime 
and wondering the extent to which they can emulate the measures he's taken. So I think aspects of it will be emulated, but it's not instantly replicable in other countries. And you don't have leaders who have the level of popularity and the ability to understand his local environment, which Bukele clearly has demonstrated. In terms of the economy, the economy is doing well, but it's not doing fantastically. But what he is introducing over the last year or so are measures to attract investment to Salvador and to improve the climate for the private sector inside the country. And we'll see whether in the changed citizen security climate, companies think it's more interesting to, again, look at Salvador as a base for nearshoring or even just trade within the region. But the other question mark that hangs over Salvador is the Constitution is quite specific about barring re-election. So President Bukele, with a revamped Supreme Court, which reviewed the Constitution and reinterpreted it to allow for President Bukele to run again, well, it's an interesting moment, but certainly not raising many questions in Salvador itself. One thing that's interesting is that he is quite an able politician. So a lot of this is very much based on, as they say in Spanish, his juego de pie. He's quite a formidable politician. You see him in news conferences and press conferences and his delivery of speech at the UN or the Miss Universe. So it'll be interesting to tell with the passage of time how much all of these changes can perhaps survive him, whether it's his next presidency and his next term or whether these changes are permanent or they're really driven by his ability of this phenom that he's shown to be. So time will tell on that front. You're absolutely right to highlight Bukele's political ability and dexterity in the context of Salvadoran politics. And we should not underestimate the success of the security measures he's taken in providing a more secure environment for Salvadorans across the board. But again, the concern, as you rightly suggest, going forward is how sustainable these draconian measures are. And I would underscore economic growth at the end of the day is important, not just for El Salvador, but for the region as a whole in addressing some of the more structural challenges that the region faces. And Central America, I think, is trying to reposition itself. Certainly, we should all hope it succeeds because jobs and growth are essential to creating services, to creating the sense of hope for the future among the very young population in those countries. Thank you, Ambassador. So moving on and also trying to address issues that I know our listeners are very interested in getting your thoughts on and doing so in a way that's timely based on recent events, as opposed to just broader <laughs> macro issues, which may be relevant, may be a relevant discussion six months from now. Earlier, just a few days ago, actually, I think it ends today or in these days, there's a conference of parties, COP28 took place in Dubai, in the UAE, and there are important commitments made by industry and governments 
and several very specific to Latin America. I know that's been top of mind for a number of people. Let me just point to a few and would love your reactions on this. So Brazil, Lula led the largest delegation in COP history, approximately 2,000 people, with hopes of positioning himself as a climate leader and champion and closer alignment to OPEC that he's trying to pursue also obviously drew some scrutiny. Colombia joined an alliance of nations calling for fossil fuel non-proliferation treaties, multilateral and regional organizations such as CAF, Corporación Andina de Fomento, and the IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank, pledged billions of dollars in funding to fight climate change. And clearly, Latin America has tremendous natural resources, mineral wealth, and just phenomenal potential as an engine for growth if they manage these environmental issues and the, let's call it monetizing their natural resources and mineral wealth in a prudent manner. What needs to happen for the region to unlock its potential? Your thoughts on whether this is just a lot of, let's say, show and these conferences that then ultimately don't lead to anything? I would love your thoughts. Well, if you'll allow me a parenthetical at the top. Please. Revolution really is taking place globally in terms of attitudes and strategies connected to addressing climate change, mitigation strategies, adaptation strategies, investments in new green technologies. And I would suggest the United States has played an enormous role in influencing that shift through the Inflation Reduction Act, through the CHIPS Act, and other measures at state level to encourage a more rapid transition away from fossil fuel dependency, but also with a focus on reducing emissions from everything from methane gas production to electricity generation to manufacturing and so on. This is the context for the COP meetings over the last couple of years. What makes COP28 interesting and potentially a shift in another direction is that American expenditures and commitments have found an echo in the European Union, the other big economic bloc in the world, it's the United States, European Union, and China. China continues to push green technologies on a host of levels, even as it still continues to expand coal production. So when we look at Latin America, Latin America is not leading the charge, but is certainly part of an international wave and an active part. And what's been fascinating to watch is governments in Colombia, in Brazil, to a lesser extent, Peru, Ecuador, addressing the whole issue of tropical forest cover, Amazon basin protection. We're seeing the concentration of political effort and resources within the region to combat what is the degradation of the country's continent's environmental strengths. And what they're calling for, and in the case of Brazil, they have the resources to begin to do it themselves, is investment in cleaner technologies, cleaner energy production. And in Brazil, I repeat, and to a lesser extent, Argentina and Chile, you're seeing investments in transitioning to EVs on a bigger scale. Earlier, I talked about the region being important as a producer of key inputs into production for the new green economy, whether it's lithium and copper or other minerals. This is an interesting moment. The caveat, the resources aren't there on the scale they're required to carry out 
a genuine transformation. So that's why you get the appeals by President Petro, President Lula, others, that the developed world, international financial institutions need to pay more attention to the opportunities that exist in Latin America more generally. They need to commit greater resources and have more synergistic strategies working with these governments going forward. The region has an enormous role to play, and I would say is ahead of some other parts of the world in taking on the challenge of protecting the environment and addressing climate change. Right. So, Ambassador McKinley, the Biden administration, in hopes of promoting democratic presidential elections in Venezuela this coming year in 2024, has supported lifting some U.S. sanctions in concert with an agreement between the opposition and the government on a roadmap to those elections. Given the current state of play with the increased tensions with Guyana, which is a close ally of the U.S., the arrest of opposition leaders, it makes for a very difficult environment that could be undermining the terms of the agreement and this rapprochement that was starting to take place. Where do you see things going? So bearing in mind, we're speaking roughly one week after President Maduro pushed through this referendum on the annexation of two-thirds of Guyana, the neighboring country. We're dealing with a complex environment in which the Maduro government is clearly feeling strong enough to continue to pursue what its own political objectives are, which boil down to two. One, removing any possibility that an opposition candidate can challenge the re-election of President Maduro and closing down the political space for the opposition to operate inside Venezuela across the medium term. And the second goal is to lift the sanctions largely imposed by the United States, particularly on the oil sector, which have certainly constrained the ability of the Maduro regime to collect revenue. If we look at it from that perspective, the agreement that was struck, which included the United States lifting sanctions on Venezuela in return for a roadmap to democratic presidential elections in 2024, within two weeks, the Maduro government basically pocketed the lifting of sanctions and has systematically undermined the opposition, not recognized the selection of Maria Corina Machado as the standard bearer for the opposition in the 2024 presidential elections, circumscribed political space announced court cases against an additional 14 Venezuelan opposition figures to include key players in Maria Corina Machado's team, and essentially signaling to all intents and purposes it has no intention of holding an open election. If you add to that the unacceptable threat against the neighboring country in a region that has not had interstate war on a meaningful scale in the modern era, we're in a situation where it would seem that Maduro thinks he can get away with just about anything, pursue his objectives, manufacture international crises, and move ahead without consequence. So that's why you're seeing at this moment an increased call in the U.S. Congress, among commentators and observers, for the reimposition of sanctions. This is partly because 
The administration said if by November 30th there wasn't progress on the October 17th Barbados Agreement, which there hasn't been, actually gone backward in terms of openings for the opposition, the United States would reimpose sanctions. We're at that point. The debate is underway, and it'll be interesting to see what the administration decides, particularly in the context of the not-so-veiled threats against the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Guyana. And imagine the Pandora's box that is opened if every land demarcation dispute that one country or a government at a different point in history wants to revisit what that calls into question. And that just further complicated by the fact that we're going into an election year in the United States, and that also leads to political considerations of a rising Venezuelan community in the United States and the impact that these types of issues have in places like Florida and beyond on U.S. electoral politics as well. So it just further complicates the analysis. So in any event, Ambassador, as they say in Spanish, el tiempo nos traicionó, time has betrayed us whenever I sit and engage with you. Time flies and I could spend hours speaking with you. I want to thank you for being our first guest on this maiden voyage of the U.S. Latin America Panorama podcast series. It's been a privilege. We hope to have you again with us, perhaps this coming year when time allows. Thank you again for your insight and for your thoughtful comments today. Thank you everyone for joining us today and listening. We hope to see you on the next podcast. And thank you very much, Francisco. It's been a real pleasure being with you. Take care. Likewise. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. Thank you.